A quick reminder before we get into today's podcast, Weird Darkness has been nominated for a podcast award in both the Storyteller Drama category as well as the People's Choice category, and you can help by nominating the podcast yourself. Visit podcastawards.com and then click on Nominations to get started, or click the link in this episode's show notes. Nominations and voting end July 31st, so please don't hesitate. Look for the Storyteller Drama category and the People's Choice category on the page after you sign in and choose Weird Darkness in the Dropbox. And thank you for being such a wonderful and weird family. And now, on with the show. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Remember E equals MC squared? This was Einstein's precursor to his general theory of relativity that describes how mass affects space and time, which are fundamentally interconnected. Stephen Hawking said it is a theory not only of curved space, but of curved or warped time as well. The big question that physicists have been pondering for decades is, can space and time warp so dramatically that certain points in time touch or overlap, making time travel possible. The story of Santiago Flight 513 is an intriguing tale that highlights our fascination with the idea of time warps. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Help! Help! Oh my God! Frank is murdering the whole family! Rouse the neighbors! These words from a terrified woman led to the story of several murders and a song that most have forgotten. After a series of attacks on farm animals in Puerto Rico, numerous people reported sightings of the creature at fault. But the strange thing is that none of the reports seemed to match, as if each sighting was of a different, unknown animal. Behind his friendly demeanor lurked a deadly obsession with torture and murder. He soon earned the label the Butcher of Kansas City. We'll look at the story of Robert Burdella. Weirdo family member Chris Musulik tells the story of him and his friends getting exactly what they asked for and wishing they hadn't. But first, critics of the Santiago Flight 513 story insist it is nothing more than an urban myth or an attempt to sell newspapers. But is there evidence to contradict their conclusions? We'll begin with that story. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Mm. 
Much has been written about air travel since it was first commercially available for holidaymakers. One enterprising newspaper reporter by the name of Irwin Fisher published 1950s Airliner Lands with 92 Skeletons on Board in the Weekly World News tabloid magazine on November 14, 1989. Santiago Flight 513 departed from Aiken in what was then West Germany on September 4, 1954. On board the Lockheed Super Constellation were 88 passengers and four crew members. The flight was just another typical and routine trip between two cities. The passengers would have had no reason to think twice about it. Somewhere over the Atlantic, though, something happened. The flight disappeared without a trace and never arrived at its destination. That was until October 12, 1989, when it made an approach to Port Allegra, circled the airport, and made a successful landing. During 513's descent, the crew neither made nor acknowledged contact with local air traffic controllers. Unsure about the situation, airport authorities sent a team out to investigate. While the aircraft itself might have been less technologically advanced, it might not have looked totally out of place. However, the airline, Santiago, had ceased operating in 1956. More pressing questions took precedence over this one, though. When security forces gained access to the plane, the reason for the lack of communication was immediately clear. Answering that mystery only opened a deeper and much more pertinent one. First responders came across the gruesome sight of 92 skeletons, all sitting in their seats. The skeleton of Miguel Victor Curry, the captain, still had hold of the controls and the engines were still idling, something that can only be accomplished with the aircraft safely on the ground. No sooner had the gruesome discovery been made, explanations and theories were proposed and debated. Among these was the rather obvious theory of a hoax or urban legend. At least one researcher into the realm of paranormal events went on record to declare that the only possible explanation that fits all of the reported details is that the aircraft utilized a time warp. However, Dr. Kelso Atello was unable to explain the reduction of all on board to a skeletal state, nor could he adequately fathom how the skeleton captain could have possibly landed the plane. Officials from the Brazilian government did investigate the circumstances of the flight, but outright refused to be drawn to any conclusions or any aspects of the investigation as a whole. Aviation officials only confirmed that the aircraft appeared out of thin air and landed safely. The debate over what happened took on a whole new outlook when the perceived secrecy behind the investigation angered many, including Dr. Atello. Researchers made numerous calls to the government and asked them to allow civilians to assist in the ongoing investigation. Other academics and dignitaries were quick to jump on the bandwagon and insisted that the public had a right to know what was going on. They felt that the government had a duty of care to actually come clean and reveal what they knew. Retired physics professor Rodrigo de Mana believed that it was a crime against science to withhold any known information, no matter what it was. He stated if this plane did enter a time warp and there is evidence to prove it, the entire world should be told. Something like this could change the way we view our world and alter science as we know it, he said. A counter-argument to this 
was that the government could reveal what many people considered to be the truth and risk an all-out panic, or they could keep quiet and risk involving themselves in a cover-up. Critics of the Flight 513 story insist it's nothing more than an urban myth or an attempt to sell newspapers. However, there is a cherished place for our science fiction stories. Numerous popular books and movies about time warps such as Back to the Future or The Philadelphia Experiment, not to mention great science fiction TV shows such as Star Trek, sparked the imaginations of many future scientists. In countless cases, science fiction has become science fact. Atomic clocks have demonstrated the space-time relationship by showing how time does speed up the further away one moves from the center of the Earth or large masses like mountains. The reduction of gravitational force causes an atomic clock to run quicker. On the contrary, time slows down when traveling at a high speed. Scientists have also confirmed Einstein's theory by observing how the Sun warps space by seeing light or radio waves bend around it. Some of the most spectacular scientific discoveries in history began with the seeds of wild fantasies and science fiction. Is it really feasible that a transatlantic flight could take off in one generation and disappear for 35 years before it reappears and lands safely with its dead crew aboard? Probably not. Perhaps time travel may never be a reality either. But within the stories like Flight 513, the imagination is an unbounded playground where one can take that trip through the proverbial wormhole. So enjoy the journey. Residents of West 30th Street, New York City, were startled on the night of October 26, 1858 by the cries of Elizabeth Carr, a servant of the Goldie family, as she ran from the house in her nightclothes, screaming, Help! Help! Oh my God! Frank is murdering the whole family! Rouse the neighbors! The neighbors, accompanied by several policemen, responded by entering the Goldie home where they found husband Francis Goldie who lay on the floor not moving. Also suffering from head wounds were 11-year-old Nathaniel Goldie, 7-year-old Charlie Goldie, and Joanna Murphy, another of the Goldie's servant girls. All were alive but semi-conscious. The perpetrator of the crime, Frank Goldie, was found in his room, dead from a self-inflicted gunshot to the head. Francis Goldie, 50 years old, was a wealthy retired lumber merchant who lived with his wife Jane and five children in a three-story house at 217 West 30th Street. Jane Goldie was his second wife and the mother of the two youngest children. The eldest children, Francis, known as Frank, Mary Eliza, and Nathaniel, were from his first wife. Frank Goldie had a reputation as a restless and wild young man. He'd been a sailor but grew tired of the sea was a clerk at a dry goods store and tired of that as well. At the time of the murder, he was living in idleness in his father's house and was the cause of grief to the family due to his habitual dissipation. Frank had always been a problem child, 
sometimes pleasant to his brothers and sisters, but often morose and vengeful with an uncontrollable temper. Frank had expressed an interest in going into business for himself, and his father had set up a bank account for him and deposited $50, with the understanding that the money was not to be touched until Frank started his business. But Frank considered the money to be his unconditionally. He took the bank book from his father's desk, withdrew $10, and went on a frolic. The attacks took place after Francis confronted his son over the theft. The events of the night of October 26th were pieced together from the testimony of Mary Goldie, who had been in the house but was unharmed, and the most cogent of the victims, Jane Gouldy and Elizabeth Carr. Frank came home at about 10 o'clock, and his father reprimanded him about the money, and Frank responded with a low, chuckling laugh, full of moaning and fiendish wickedness. Mrs. Gould heard Frank and her husband scuffling in the front room, then he entered her room and as she lay in bed, he hit her several times in the head with a dull hatchet. She rose up trying to ward off the blows, then fell to the floor. Frank passed through the hall to the bedroom of his two brothers, but they were not there. They had heard the noise and ran to their father. When he found them, Frank struck them both with a hatchet. Elizabeth Carr and Joanna Murphy heard cries of murder, murder, and came running downstairs when they found Frank with a hatchet in his hand. He struck Joanna on the head and she fell to the floor, but Elizabeth was able to wrestle the hatchet away from him. She ran back to her room and he chased after her saying, "'Give me the hatchet, Lizzie. I do not wish to kill you. I only wish to escape.' But after wrenching it away from her, he gave Lizzie three blows to the head before running away. About a minute later, she heard a gunshot, and thinking he was firing at her, she ran outside and called for help. Mary Goldie was also calling for help from her bedroom window. She had come out of her room to see what was going on, and she saw Frank striking Joanna Murphy. Mary ran back to her room and locked the door. All of the victims were taken to the hospital in critical condition, and for a while it did not appear that any of them would survive but gradually they recovered from their wounds, and Mrs. Goldie, who was pregnant at the time of the attack, gave birth to a healthy baby. Only Elizabeth Carr, who had been most active in fighting off her attacker, succumbed. She had suffered a fractured skull and compression of the brain and appeared to be recovering comfortably, but on November 12th, her condition suddenly changed and she died two days later. The savage attacks by Frank Goldie were the subject of an all-but-forgotten song entitled The 30th Street Murder by the wandering New York songwriter Henry S. Backus. Keep listening, we're only halfway through this episode of Weird Darkness. You know, I've been using Blinkist a lot recently, and not just because they are a sponsor, but because it's actually brought me a renewed interest in self-improvement and soaking in knowledge from others. See, I don't have time to sit and read books or even to listen to audiobooks because I'm so busy narrating audiobooks. So Blinkist is perfect for me. They take a full-length, non-fiction book and they break it down into the main components or key points, which they call blinks, and I get to listen to an entire non-fiction book in just 15 minutes. And today I was listening to the Blinkist version of Emotional Blackmail, when the people in your life use fear, obligation, and guilt to manipulate you, by Susan Forward, Ph.D. I'm guessing that title alone strikes a few people right now. The book Emotional Blackmail it helps you understand, identify, 
confront and remedy manipulation in our closest relationships. The blinks are filled with insightful explanations about the true nature of toxic relationships and it provides you with the tools you need to break out of that vicious cycle. If you're tired of fighting a losing battle with somebody you love or if you think maybe fear is running your life or if you want to empower yourself in your relationships with friends and family, then the Blinkist book Emotional Blackmail, it's for you. And you can listen to it for free right now. All you have to do is sign up for a free one-week trial at Blinkist.com slash WeirdDarkness. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash WeirdDarkness. Take control of your life. Here's an honest question. How are you supposed to know what to do with your money? Very few of us are exposed to meaningful advice on how to manage our finances. Even fewer have the means to get professional financial guidance. Betterment is a platform that was built to do something radical, to give accessible financial advice that puts you first. If you're like most Americans, your money is probably sitting in a savings account, likely earning you next to nothing. Maybe you have an investment account that you're not really sure what to do with. Betterment can help you make sense of what to do with your money. Investing involves risk, but you don't have to know the ins and the outs of the stock market to start investing for your future. Betterment's technology will put your money to work choosing the stocks and strategies that are right for you because we know you have other things to do. Betterment's platform can even provide guidance on what financial goals make sense for you. Give your money a new home with Betterment, peace of mind included. Download the Betterment app today. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T for the betterment of you. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Weirdo family member Kitty sent me an email saying, My husband works out of state the majority of the time, and when he left, he wanted to take his MyPillow with him. That's how much he loves his. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com. Promo code WEIRD. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it, you're not alone. Call 1-800-273-8255. They'll show you a way out of your depression, even if you're trying to deal with it through drugs or alcohol. With the FMLA, you can take a leave of absence from your job and return to it once you've found help. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. In August 1995, the Canavanas region of the island of Puerto Rico was hit by a spate of very bizarre attacks on farm animals. The unfortunate creatures, typically goats, chickens, and pigs, were found dead with deep puncture wounds to their necks and amid controversial claims that significant amounts of blood were missing from their corpses. Farmers were on edge, the media had an absolute field day, and the people of Puerto Rico were plunged into states that ranged from fear to hysteria. When similar killings began to be reported in numerous other parts of Puerto Rico, that fear was amplified to even greater levels. All of which is hardly surprising when one takes into consideration the physical appearance of the beast that was believed to be behind all of the slaughtering. It became known as the Chupacabra. 
The first person, so far as we know, to see the beast of this particular wave was a woman named Madeline Tolentino, who lived in Canavanas, the initial scene of all the action. She described it as a fairly compact animal that ran on two legs in a strange hopping style and which had what looked like rows of feathers running down the back of its head and spine. As media interest grew and grew, so did sightings of the mysterious monster. But that's when things became not just interesting, but beyond interesting. There's a very good reason for that. Not everyone saw the same beast that Tolentino encountered, or at least it did not look the same. It's one thing to suggest that in the 1990s, one unknown and dangerous animal was on the loose on Puerto Rico. It's quite another, however, to suggest that multiple strange creatures were running wild on the island. And yet, that happens to have been exactly what was going on. Unless all of the reports were of the same monster. But given their physical differences, how could that be? Very easily, that's how if the chupacabra is a shapeshifter, which is a theory I have heard time and again from Puerto Rico. Although the first sighting of the creature in the summer of 1995 effectively dictated how the locals perceived the animal to look, not everyone reported something that resembled the monster seen by Madeline Tolentino, as we shall now see. In the days, weeks, months, and even years that followed, countless reports of chupacabra attacks on farm animals were reported. The problem, however, is that the descriptions of the beast varied to incredible degrees. In some cases, witnesses told of seeing an animal that did not have the feathery line running along the back of its head, neck, and spine as described by Tolentino. Instead, they saw a row of menacing-looking spikes, which stood erect and around four to five inches in length. And of course, it would be very hard to mistake a line of feathers for a row of vicious spikes. Then there was the matter of how the animal ran. According to both Tolentino and the majority of the early witnesses, it was a bipedal beast, albeit one which bounced along in a bizarre hopping fashion. Others, however, were sure that the creatures they saw ran on four limbs only, and there was nothing bizarre about its movements. They were likened to the way in which a large cat, such as a mountain lion, would stalk its prey. Now let us look at the eyes of the chupacabra. Some sightings involved creatures with bright blue eyes. In other cases, the eyes were of a piercing, devilish red and glowing variety. The most significant factor, however, was the matter of the wings of the chupacabra. Yes, that's correct. Wings. In some cases, but most certainly not all, the creatures were said to have had large and powerful-looking bat-like wings. In other words, they were black and leathery-looking. When faced with such stories, other witnesses swore the monsters had absolutely no wings at all. Adding to the puzzle is the fact that, on my second expedition to seek out the Puerto Rican chupacabra, I spoke with a man named Pucho, who saw such a thing but which had wings like those of a large bird. They were feathery. Most controversial of all are the reports of the chupacabra transforming into a large and lumbering Bigfoot. I kid you not. I should stress that such reports are very rare and very few and far between, but I do have 11 such reports in my files. 
In all the cases, the witnesses saw the chupacabra engulfed by a near-blinding white light and then mutating into a large, hair-covered humanoid before their startled eyes. When we put all of this information together, we are clearly faced with a major-sized conundrum. How can one creature take on multiple appearances and forms? Well, the answer is that no normal animal can do such a thing. But there's nothing normal about the chupacabra. Rather, everything suggests it is undeniably abnormal or paranormal. For many of the people in Puerto Rico, the chupacabra can change its form – a shape-altering monster. April 2nd, 1988 – The Day Before Easter Sunday A naked man with a dog collar around his neck leaps from the second-story window of a house in Kansas City's Hyde Park neighborhood. A neighbor finds the man crouched on his porch and calls 911. When police break open an unassuming white house on Charlotte Street, they find a tortured dungeon like something straight out of a horror movie. Inside the home, the police found more than 200 Polaroid photos and detailed torture logs documenting the kidnapping, torture, and eventual murder of at least six men, most of them male prostitutes, between 1984 and 1988. They also seized torture devices, an extensive library on witchcraft and the occult, a satanic ritual robe, and a human skull in an upstairs closet. That weekend, residents in the quiet neighborhood were awakened to the sound of the police excavating the home's backyard where they found bone fragments and an additional human head. The house belonged to Robert Burdella, the man who would soon become known as Kansas City's most notorious serial killer. Prior to his arrest, Burdella was that serial killer cliché, someone neighbors described as a nice man who kept to himself. He helped start a neighborhood watch program, had worked as a chef, and ran his own booth at the Westport Flea Market. Called Bob's Bizarre Bazaar, the booth was a Kansas City fixture that sold everything from human skulls and shrunken heads to occult books and antiques. On the weekend that Berdella was captured, the Final Four tournament was happening in Kansas City, and Berdella displayed four human skulls – some say actual skulls, but more likely only models – in the window of Bob's Bizarre Bazaar, along with a sign that read, The Final Four. In spite of the overwhelming and gruesome evidence found in Berdella's Hyde Park home, he was initially only charged with sodomy, felonious restraint, and first-degree assault. It took time for the authorities to realize the extent of Berdella's crimes, because the majority of his victims' bodies were never found. The list of atrocities that Berdella perpetrated on his victims would not be out of place in a movie like Saw or Hostel including applying bleach to their eyes with cotton swabs, injecting their vocal cords with drain cleaner, and gouging one victim's eyes out just to see what would happen. Once his victims were dead, he dismembered the bodies in his bathtub and put the body parts out for the garbage men. If his seventh victim hadn't escaped, there's no telling how long he would have gone on killing. 
Once Perdella's case became public knowledge, popular rumor would have it that he cooked and served some of his victims as food at his shop, though there is no actual evidence to suggest that was the case. After his arrest, Berdella cited the 1965 film adaptation of John Fowle's novel The Collector, in which a man kidnaps a young woman and holds her captive in his basement as an inspiration for his murders. Berdella described his crimes as, my darkest fantasies becoming my reality. Berdella's own crimes inspired their share of movies, books, and even songs. A local radio personality wrote a parody song called They Call Me Bob Berdella to the tune of Donovan's 1966 hit Mellow Yellow. The parody played on local radio stations, which also gave out prizes to listeners who attended events wearing dog collars. In one of the only interviews he ever gave before his death, Berdella expressed his displeasure over the songs and the media coverage of his murders, claiming that the media dehumanized him just as he had dehumanized his victims. Berdella referred to himself as the neighbor next door who reached a point in his life where he could do monstrous acts. That's not the same thing as being a monster. Robert Berdella died of a heart attack in prison in 1992 after writing letters claiming that prison officials were not giving him his heart medication. Other accounts have since implied that Berdella was poisoned while behind bars, but no official investigation of his death was ever conducted. For whatever reason, Berdella never attained the national notoriety of killers like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, or John Wayne Gacy. These days he is largely forgotten outside of Kansas City, but those who grew up there such as your host of Weird Darkness, we still remember where we were when we first heard about the Butcher of Kansas City. If you go to the Westport Flea Market today, there is no plaque or sign to commemorate the spot where Bob's Bizarre Bazaar once stood, but most locals can still point it out. Tonight's final story comes from weirdo family member Chris Musilek. Here is his story. The night was like any other weekend in the middle of the National Allegheny Forest, camping with some friends and a couple of beers. There's a bunch of us and I'll introduce everyone on the way. I'm Chris. Same old, same old. We're at one of our favorite spots not too deep in the woods but deep enough to not hear anything but nature. So the night goes on, normal. We drank a good amount of beers and the girls decided to go to sleep. The boys were still up sitting around the fire. I had this idea, a horrible interesting thought that I said aloud. I wish… I wish we could see something we couldn't explain, something that if we tried to explain it to anyone nobody would believe us. At the moment, everyone was shaking their heads in agreement with me. They all said something of agreement. There was five of us at the moment sitting around the fire conjuring, something openly accepting anything into our reality, not just accepting, but we invited it. We asked for it. We wished for it. An hour or so went by, and we decided to call it a night. Nothing out of the ordinary other than our friend Trevor, he was a heavy drinker, 
and had just as many drinks as we all did, but now he is completely sapped of all his energy. He passed out in his chair before we yelled something like, "'You sleeping in the chair, bud?' He got up and stumbled to his tent. We laughed it off. It was pretty late anyway. He probably was just tired. After he was out, Nathaniel started getting really tired really quick, and he called it a night. So that leaves me, Pete, and Larry. Awake. Bored. Not tired at all, but we didn't have anything to do. We went to our tents and noticed that they were soaked, like someone poured a gallon of water in them. Can't sleep in water, so we said that we'll call Pete's dad. He's a good guy, and, well, he'd give us rides, so we didn't have to drive drunk. I left my phone in Trevor's car, and he had the keys. We tried waking him, to no success. We decided to just take his keys and open his car. We were walking to his car, and I swore I saw something sitting in the driver's seat, gripping the steering wheel. I just froze. Larry and Pete didn't, until they saw it. Larry and Pete backpedaled faster than I've ever seen anyone, and I'm like, did you see that guy? They had no words. I said, let's just walk home. Absolutely horrible idea. We're walking with the light of the moon to guide us. We looked down to notice I had a shadow, but Pete didn't. I said, Pete, why, did, why don't you have a shadow? He looked horrified at me and replied, Chris, why do you have one? At this time, we noticed I was the only one of us that had a shadow. The coldest chill went over me, and all my hair stood up. We stared at my shadow for only a second before it whipped away into the darkness of the woods. We started running for our lives, faster than we ever ran before until we reached a clearing with some weird object in the middle of this opening. It looked like a table with a bunch of stuff on it. I was drawn to it. I started walking through prickers off the trail to get to this table. Pete and Larry tried to stop me, but I insisted I wanted to see what it was. We passed this on the way here, and that shrine wasn't there. I got within five feet of it, and as fast as you can blink, it was gone. We ran and ran and ran. The story doesn't end there. Nathaniel was awoke by someone stoking the fire and strumming on my guitar. He yelled out, cut it out, Chris. Nothing but silence. He looked out of his tent to see my guitar leaned up against a tree right next to his head. He went back to sleep. Not long after that, one of the girls named Ruth had to go to the bathroom. We're in the woods and it's scary at night, so she woke up Sadie to go with her. She did. They worked their way into the darkness not too far apart. When Ruth saw someone running in the woods in front of them, she thought Sadie was messing with her. Sadie saw and thought the same about Ruth. They both came back to the tent like, good try, almost got me. Both of them said it wasn't them chills. We made this happen. When you wish for something like this, you'll get results. It fed off of our friend's energy. It tormented us in our dreams, stalked us in the woods, and made us feel crazy. But then again, what exactly is normal? You don't have to believe it. Something unbelievable. It's exactly what we wished for.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Weird Darkness. If you made it this far, you can count yourself as part of our Weirdo family. And you can help spread the Weird Darkness around the world by sharing this podcast with your friends and family on Twitter, Facebook, and your other social media, or maybe send them a text or an email. I'd also like to invite you to become an official Weirdo. For as little as five bucks per month, you will get the early release, commercial-free version of Weird Darkness, exclusive news about the podcast, special offers only available to official weirdos, and even a lapel pin telling the world you are officially weird. You can learn more about becoming an official weirdo at WeirdDarkness.com. And a huge thank you and welcome to my newest patron, Veronica Laviolette. In fact, she signed up to become an irresponsible official weirdo, which means that uh, along with everything I just told you, she also gets to hear chapters of audiobooks as I record them, even before the authors or the publishing companies get to hear it. So thank you very much, Veronica. I really appreciate you becoming an official weirdo. Be sure to check out the website, WeirdDarkness.com. There you can find the Weirdos Facebook group, the chat room where I hold a live listen and chat on the fourth Wednesday of every month. There's audiobooks, the Weird Darkness store, links to my social media, and more. Hey, and are you weird at work? Do you listen to the podcast at the office? Are your co-workers weirdos as well? Well, let me know on the Weird at Work page. You might get a shout-out in a future episode, and maybe get a delivery of something weird and or dark at the office from me. If you listen via Apple Podcasts, I would love to see a review from you, or you can drop me an email at darren at weirddarkness.com. I got a review from Susie Q in Apple Podcasts. She said, Best podcast ever. Darren, your podcast is by far my favorite. I listen every day and don't think that I could get through my workday without it. I just listened to the Black Monk of 30 East Drive episode and could not believe the comments at the end. Please ignore those that love to spread hate. They are usually people that are unhappy in their own life. I think the fundraising you do is endearing, and I absolutely love the Bible quotes at the end, even though I'm not exactly a religious person. Please keep up the awesome work and stay true to you. P.S. I love Creepypasta Thursday. Signed, Susie Q. Oh, Susie Q. Baby, I love you, Susie Q. I like the way you walk. I like the way you talk, Susie Q. I know you've probably heard that a billion times, but, <laughs> but I couldn't resist. And for those of you listening who have no idea what I'm referring to, uh, you need to go back and listen to some Creedence Clearwater Revival. Uh, that was music. That was the way that music sounded before everybody began cheating with autotune. And then I also got another Apple Podcast review from Ginoblaze3001 saying, Down the rabbit hole. I have been sucked in by your podcast. I love it, and I'm excited when you update. Thanks for your great stories. Well, I'd, I'd uh, much rather have you sucked in than for you to tell me that I suck. So, welcome to the Weirdo Family, Gentle Blaze 3001. Again, if you want to drop me an email, you can do that by sending it to Darren at WeirdDarkness.com. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Click on Tell Your Story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. All stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. Weird Darkness is a registered trademark of Marlar House Productions and is part of the BG Podcast Network. Copyright Marlar House Productions 2019. And if you or your company are ever in need of a professional voice guy, talk to me. I'd love to hear about your project and maybe how I might be able to help you. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. 
Micah chapter 5, verse 5, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. And a final thought from TV news personality Robin Roberts. When fear knocks, let faith answer the door. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness.